new season of Critical Thinking for Everyone. We're on our fourth year doing this show, and we thank you for listening and thank you for being a fan of our show and of Forward Radio. We welcome your comments at Critical Thinking for Everyone on our Facebook page and always through forwardradio.org. Thank you for listening. Here we go. reruns uh, for a variety of reasons, Uh, but we're super excited to have some fresh, exciting shows for you. I'm Patty Payette. I am the co-host along with Brian Barnes of this fine show, and uh, Brian is not joining us this week. I'm in the booth doing uh, this interview with a special guest. And Brian will be back uh, soon, though. So you can expect the two of us uh, back in the booth very soon. But we're kicking off this year with me uh, interviewing Dr. Andreas Elpiduro, who is a, a faculty member and a scholar right here at the University of Louisville. So welcome, Andreas. Thank you so much for having me, Patty. Um, this is this is the second time I'm on the show, so I'm I'm delighted to get an invitation to return. That's right. We had you on, and if I'm not mistaken, it was almost two years ago when you were working on the book. I think so. Yeah. So yeah. So we said we wanted to bring you back after the book has been released. And for those of you wondering that what I'm talking about in terms of Andreas's book, um, his book is called Propelled. How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life. Um, And last time you gave us lots of juicy insights and um, Brian and I both had an opportunity to read your book. So so thank you for sharing that with us. And um, so we're just so excited. Brian has sent some questions that I will be posing and as part of this interview as well. So, um, so, so much to talk about. So let me start with this. Let's talk first a little bit about you, Andreas, and what you do here at U of L. Um, looking at your website, I see you. you what your uh, specialty is in the philosophical study of the mind. So, I'll right there. I'm like, wow, that is pretty broad. That's a big. <laughs> that's a pretty big, wide area of specialty. 
Yeah, exactly. So it is very broad. And, you know, most of the things that we do as human beings um, tend to fall under that category, the human mind. So I, you know, I'm interested in the broad questions about who we are and what are we um, and how we interact with others and with the world. Um, I started my kind of philosophical scholarly journey with trying to understand the nature of human consciousness. Another big question, but trying to figure out whether scientific approaches to consciousness can tell us all there is to know about consciousness in some way, or there's something else. Is there work for philosophers? Is there um, work for religious scholars? Is there work for somebody else uh, in addition to you know our, our neuroscientists and our psychologists when we're trying to understand consciousness? And now, you know, in the last decade or so, I've switched uh, focus in my research, and now I'm more interested um, in a topic, we, it's called negative emotions. Um, and those are emotions, they're negative, not necessarily because they're bad for us, but we call them negative because we just don't want to have them. They don't feel good. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm examining that idea, that, that area of negative emotions and specifically what they can do for us and what is their role in our lives. So within the umbrella, the big category of human mind and behavior. Now my focus, I'm looking at a class of negative emotions and I'm trying to really understand, you know, what are they doing for us, what they are, why are they negative and all those kinds of questions. Okay. So I, I that I'm so glad you started there because in your book, when you talk about boredom and frustration in particular, uh, you talk about boredom, frustration, and anticipation. But when you specifically talked about boredom and frustration, I felt a little um, relief, like, well, okay, so these are part of the human condition. Andreas is telling me that this is actually part of being human, and this can actually be revealing and instructive for me, as opposed to something to push away. And and you know, we nobody enjoys being bored and frustrated. I don't think. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and I think that was one of the motivations for me to work on this project was to try to make sense and maybe even come to peace with some of the negative emotions that we so often experience. And and you know, now I think I still wouldn't choose to have them voluntarily. I wouldn't embrace them in some way. But at the same time, what I've come to realize is that, well, they're going to arise. We're going to experience them. So better know a little bit about what they are and what they can do for us. Okay. I love that. They're inevitable. So why not you know, make lemonade out of the lemons. Uh, what what can, okay, so your website also indicates you've written a lot on boredom. You're known as a, <laughs> this is such a funny thing to say, you're a boredom expert, right? <laughs> it is funny um, or depressing, or I don't know what, what the adjective should be. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, I mean, I've started working on boredom. It's been over 10 years, which is, I haven't, you know, it, I don't, one doesn't often think about how long one works on something, but now that I come to realize it's been a while. Um, so it's a, at least 10, 12 years. And um, it, it seems that there is, there's so much more that can be said about boredom. Um, and so I'm still fascinated about boredom and, and I want to explore more uh, possibilities. And I've learned a lot more um, since I started. Um, one of the things that, I think one of my first impressions on boredom coming from my own discipline and my own background as a uh, philosopher was that the history of philosophy 
would treat boredom as a necessarily a toxic state. Um, most accounts that we have about boredom is that boredom is bad, it's either a sin or, or, or a psychological condition that we should do whatever we can to avoid it. And so one of the first questions that I took up was, well, is that right? Is that the whole story? Uh, and so much of my initial work on boredom was maybe a stubborn refusal to accept that that's the whole story. And I was really trying to figure out, wait, wait a minute, there must be a silver lining that might be, I can put a spin on this idea. And so that was, and, and I've done a lot of work on that. And so the book is partly, it's partly telling that story about boredom, although I don't want to, at no point do I want to say it's all good. There's also the negative stuff as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so that's really interesting. I love that that you got into it because you were you you said to yourself, I don't think that that's the whole story that philosophers are telling us the whole story about boredom as toxic and negative. I think there's something more here. So, so I love that, and I love that you're you're endlessly interested in it. All right, that's a wonderful attitude to have about your area of scholarship. <laughs> Well, I, it also helps kind of the, the social and environmental climate right now. Um, I think more and more people are interested in boredom. Um, I had an interest in boredom pre-pandemic, lockdown, COVID, all that. And I think a lot of people now are trying to, well, you, you know, with additional restrictions, I think often boredom might arise uh, even more than before. And, and so I think in the popular culture, boredom um, has become a topic of conversation. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. I definitely want to talk more about that in terms of the ways in which the pandemic restricts us and uh, and what can that can tell us about boredom. Yeah, I would love to talk more about that. Um, so one of the things I want to start with is you at the beginning of the book, you really make a strong case for boredom, frustration, anticipation as being teachers. Uh, you say they have a lot to teach us and um, about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How somebody could really use these, and you call them, I think you said, uh, negative emotional states, right? Uh, or psychological states. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I am a believer of the view that most of the experiences that we have, most of the psychological states or emotions or feelings happen for a reason, not, not for a reason every time that we experience them, but rather as human beings, we're designed by nature to have certain experiences. So it's, I, I, I well, let me say, I start from the presumption that they, they serve a value or they have a function to play in our lives. And so what I find, um, they all, 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 all three states that I consider in the book um, can be unified. I call them conditions of kind of being stuck in a situation or in a present that you're not satisfied with. Okay, so, so let's say that. Okay, so all three, boredom, frustration, anticipation, are experiences of being stuck in a, in a situation that you're not, or a, like a moment or a, a con, a, that you're not happy with. Yeah, and I think it's really easy to see that with boredom, right? When we're bored, what happens? Well, there's nothing really that interests me or I cannot be cognitively engaged with my job, with my conversation, with my TV show or my book. Frustration, 
arises, and we can talk more about this, arises when there is an obstacle. We want to achieve something, but something gets in the way, and we become frustrated in response to that obstacle. Anticipation is a little bit of kind of the odd one of the three. And we can mean a lot of things by anticipation. What I have in mind mostly is a state in which I am just not satisfied with what I'm doing right now, but I, I look forward to something in the future. And so my present has a dual nature. It's kind of, oh, I don't like it, but at the same time, I have to bear it. I have to, um, I have to experience this. I have to go through it because at the end of this experience, at the end of my present, or at least at the end of the tunnel, whatever we want to call it, I'll get something that I, I desire. And so what all these states tell us, um, on one hand, they tell us that, look, you're in a situation that's just not quite for you right now. Mm. Um, there's just something that is not working for you. It's not, Either, something is dissatisfying. Exactly. And I think that that kind of information is important. I mean, not always, but I mean, I think examples will help. So if I'm if I'm bored with, I don't know, with a TV show or with a Netflix thing that I'm watching, you know, what does that experience tell me? Well, it tells me that like, well, it's not interesting for you right now. It's not your show. It's not what you want to have. Um, it's not the experience that you want to have. But there can be other experiences or other indications of boredom that are far more important for us. So let's say you're bored with your job or, or with your occupation. Or let's say you're bored with your romantic relationship. That is a significant a piece of information, very important that you know we have to kind of come to terms with and say, okay, why am I bored? Um, and what can I do about that? And so boredom indicates this perceived lack of meaning, uh, of meaning or an inability to properly engage with something. A frustration um, indicates. Um, the presence of an obstacle. I want to achieve something, but I just can't get it. And anticipation also indicates this kind of my present right now isn't what I want to be doing. All my attention, all my energy is focused in the future. So one, the, the, so this is what I'm calling kind of the first part of their function or their value has to do um, with what you called. I think put it very um, very nicely. They're teachers. Um, yeah. They allow us to learn things about ourselves, but also about our situations. So that's the first kind of aspect that I really try to highlight and try to understand what we can learn from those experiences. Okay, so I think of what you're saying and in reading your book, I think of there's sort of a dual aspect to making the most of boredom, frustration, and anticipation. And I say dual because you said they're on the one hand, they tell us something, and two, they give us an opportunity to make meaning. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so if we see them as, oh, wow, this isn't working for me, or I'm not satisfied, then the next step that it can teach us is what's missing, right? What what needs to change? So that's yeah. the making meaning part. It is the making meaning part, especially in the case of boredom, I think, and we know this from a lot of um, empirical work on boredom, is that boredom is a push to find meaning. And that is good news and also bad news because we all find meanings in different places, meaning in different places. Um, and that doesn't necessarily translate into moral or um, you know, beneficial for us or for others' behavior. Um, uh, frustration, I think they, what they all do... Um, it is to motivate us to do something. Um, 
and, and I think that's key of the fact that uh, this stems from the fact that they're all negative experiences. We just don't want to be in them. Right. Um, and that they have that energizing and motivating quality in them. So boredom just pushes us frustration, um, energizes us to keep try, uh, st uh, trying to overcome the obstacle. And, and anticipation often gives us the fuel that's necessary to keep going and keep pursuing what the end goal in some ways. So there is the informational part uh, that we need to pay attention. There's the motivating part. And I think then the question is, how do we bring those two together? What is the best strategy of doing that? And I think your question of, you know, what else is needed there kind of focuses on perhaps the, the most difficult aspect is, okay, I, I experience those emotions. I understand what they're trying to tell me or what they're trying to do, but then what? Um, and now, that's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. now what? So um, I wanted to give an example from my own life that in reading your book that I re really resonated with me, which was um, I was in my mid-20s and like a lot of young people in their 20s, life, it, you're trying things out. You're trying out a career or a major or a a path in life or a city you want to live in or right, you're trying things out in deciding, do I like this? Does it fit? So when I was in my tw mid twenties, I was working in marketing and public relations and for an or a nonprofit that I was, you know, very passionate about. And, um, and I did the job for a couple of years and I hit a wall because I realized I was bored <laughs> with, I mean, I didn't use the word bored at the time, but I realized now that I had reached a ceiling of my interest, I had hit my skill level. Oh, I can sell, right? I can, I know how to sell. I know how to market this, but wow, is that really where I want to put my energy, right? Mm -hmm. So I had some boredom and frustration and I realized, wow, what I really want to be doing is I really want to go to graduate school. I really want to use my mind in a different way. I guess is the best way to put it, right? Um, so, so for me, when 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 I read your book and you said making give it helps us make meaning, what I learned was this is not giving this is not this job this career path is not fulfilling me. I need and for these reasons I need to do something else. So, so that was a really important moment for me as a as a young person. Yeah, it's a great example, and I think it highlights. Kind of, I mean, let me just say this before I, 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 I make this comment about the example. Um, we often talk about boredom as being a trivial experience, um, and it can be sometimes, right? You know, I'm bored when I'm waiting for my dentist appointment. That's okay, right? It doesn't need to be revealing of anything important in our lives. You're just, you're just waiting. But then there, there are examples or cases like the one that you described that I'm doing something that should be significant. Um, doing something that seems to be important and yet I've, I've become bored or frustrated or I just, I'm looking forward to the future instead of immersing myself in the present more. So what can we do at that point? I, I mean, you it seems that you've mastered that, you've done perfectly in that situation. Um, it, the problem is I think a lot of people just don't know what to do when they hit that wall. Yes, yes. And is it sometimes hard to know what to do when you hit a wall? Is it because, is one reason because the emotion sort of uh, like you're too close to it? 
or the motion? Like what what makes that hard? Yeah. I think perhaps it, it it's different with the different states, so it might be perhaps different with frustration and boredom. But I, I let me give another example that uh, I found to be true with my children. So I have two children. They are often bored, and they'll come to me for like, I'm bored. What can we do? And what I discover is that you know you can really, if you tell them do X or Y, it doesn't really work. I mean, it's easy for me to say, go read a book or play with Legos or just go outside. They don't want to do that or they don't think that is going to um, alleviate their boredom. So in the case of boredom, there are a lot of obstacles that we need to overcome. But I think one that's kind of internal to it is that there's a we experience a kind of crisis of agency. We're just not quite sure what to do when we are bored because what we are doing just doesn't quite fulfill us. Um, and we do know from experiments when we, when scientists and um, psychologists bored individuals and then they ask them, okay, what do you want to do? Well, they all know that they want to do something that isn't what they're doing right now, but it's much far harder for them to articulate what it is that they want to do. Um, so although we have this, I think, instinctual you know, knowledge or desire, I want to do something else, um, it's very hard to articulate what we want to do, and often it's very hard to know what um, that other thing over there, um, that's not the, which isn't what we're doing right now, it's not going to be boring, uh, or it's not going to be dangerous, um, or it's not going to waste my time. So there's, there are going to be a lot of outcomes or escapes for, out of boredom, but not necessarily all of them are going to be good for us. Got it. Okay, really interesting. Um, so in your book, you mentioned that there's different kinds of people and you mentioned doers. Mm -hmm. uh, can you can you remind me a little more about? What yes. So, about? yeah, that's so there are different ways of trying to understand how we regulate our own behavior. And so there are different. The, this is not an exhaustive um, dichotomy and it doesn't mean that, um, you know, it, it's going to. Um, give a full description of how we behave. But there's a distinction between someone who scores high on a scale called locomotion scale. Um, and so these are people who do things. They're the doers, as you say. There are people who um, they see an opportunity and they take it. And then there's a different, not mutually exclusive category of people who are called the assessors. So these are the thinkers. So these are the type of people who like to consider all the possibilities, all the options before they do something. And there's a large body of research that shows that ideally you want to be on both high on both counts. So if I give you a test, whether you're an assessor or a locomotor, it's a good idea to score. It's it's great like to score balance. on both. Like you want a balance of both. Yeah, exactly. If you score on both high, what that means is that not only do you think about your options, but you also choose one and you follow through it. So the locomotors are good because they actually follow through their desires. They they start projects. They don't necessarily finish them, but at least they start projects. <laughs> uh, the doers are the ones that may never start projects, but they're the ones that are really thought about. Them. So ideally, you want the combination. It turns out that if you ha if I had to choose, 
I, you know, perhaps I can't get both. I can't be both. If I had to choose, I'll choose the locomotor. I'll choose to be a doer instead doer. of a thinker. Yeah. It just turns out that you're going to have a better, perhaps a more pleasant psychological experience in life if you're able to motivate yourself to do certain things. So I think one of the key, you know, it goes back to having this right balance, right? You Not only do you want to do things, but you want to do the right things. Right. Um, so I think it's crucial to escape boredom and frustration um, to be a doer. But you shouldn't just be a doer for the sake of doing things. Yeah. So um, I definitely feel like I have a bit of both, but I, I think I tend to err more on the side of, of being a doer. Um, and my spouse is more of an assessor. And so I think we're a good balance for mm-hmm. each other, you know, um, and I appreciate that. I've come to re- I've come to really appreciate that. Yeah, it's like balance and checks, right? You need you need someone to keep you in place if you're if you're starting planning to slow do down, it. right? Slow yeah. down, and then and then he needs somebody that's like, okay, let's have a plan, let's do it, let's move forward, let's have a you know timeline. Um, so I want to ask one of Brian's questions here. So um, let me just, again, you know, Brian is, like you, a philosopher. (laughs) Brian wants you to talk about the burden of proof that you assume readers as it relates to their ability to be convinced by your examples. So you bring up some purely speculative examples, but you also have many from the hard sciences. You also discuss epistemological issues and standards throughout the book. So ultimately, how certain should people feel about your assertions regarding the various dispositions boarding anticipation? What, yeah. what's, what do you think Brian's asking here? I mean, he's an expert on critical thinking, so there's something about critical thinking here. I mean, I don't think, you know, I think if someone is reading the book, I think they should keep an open mind. I don't know everything, obviously, and the science moves and the philosophy moves and we change our minds. Um, and that's part of what it means to learn more and make progress. Um, so I, I think the book is, I, I mean, maybe I can divide it into two parts, but not not parts meaning the first part and then the second part, or better, let me just say this, I think it's better, there might be two levels there I work at the book. I think I'm trying to give a descriptive analysis of how emotions are. And so in that case, I'm really trying to tell science and philosophy in a way that people can understand and can see, yeah, that that sounds right. You know, there's emotions here, they do those things. And in that case, I've tried to do the best I could to stay close to the sources and give a voice to what we think, what the experts or the community of experts think this is our best take currently on emotions. Um, so that's a descriptive level. But there is a, I'm also doing philosophy, so I cannot help it but add a layer to that, which is kind of the normative account. And I'm also telling how sometimes things should be or how people should act. And so I'm making a case that the good life or what we want out of life should be one that embraces those negative states in the right way. Now, that might not necessarily work for everybody. That might be, maybe I'm mistaking about that because I'm kind of, 
I'm, I'm extending myself theoretically speaking there. But that's okay. I think that's part of the challenge, and that's what people, you know, when you read this or when you hear an idea about boredom or frustration or anticipation, you have to see if it works in your context. Um, yeah. Okay. So part of the good life. Uh, these states are part of the good life. So let me ask you this. I am thinking to myself, okay, how do I shift my lens so that I can see frustration and boredom and anticipation as part of the good life? And I, I say to myself, well, I am familiar, and Brian and I have done um, uh, some show, prior shows on some, on some of these, touch on some of these topics. And I'll give you an example. Um, we did a show on the book on the book Bored and Brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with that book, um, Manoush Samarodi's book. And um, and she, one of the things she says about boredom is that when you are bored, you can see it as an opportunity to kind of let your brain problem solve and kind of free roam. Don't stick your phone up in front of your face. Put it down and let your brain, you know, the incubation and the natural state of your brain do, go where it's gonna go. Don't make it, uh, focus it on attention, you know, 20, you know, every every moment you're awake, it's focused on. So, so, um, so she has helped me think about boredom in that context as an opportunity to, to daydream or problem solve or mull over something. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big, um, Muller over talk <laughs> so so I understand that. Um, is that when you say the good life, is that the kind of thing you mean? Like how do we harness boredom or or are you talking in, in different terms? Like like how how do I actually think about this as a part of my good life? Yeah, it's part of it. And I think we can talk about specific um ways in which those emotions can help us. But I also think there's a more general way in which they're vibe, they carry value for us. So I, I make a case, and I think this is, yeah, I, I present this at the beginning of the book, and I try to make a case that as human beings, we value other things in addition to happiness. Yes, um, yes. I mean, so I think I think that's true. Now, again, I can't uni speak universally for on behalf of everybody. And there might be people who say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I just want happiness. But I think a lot of us um, want other things in addition to happiness. And sometimes we're even willing to give away some of our happiness to achieve those things. And so what are those things? Well, I think a lot of us want a sense of meaningfulness in our life. We want to feel or to sense or to perceive that there's meaning in our lives. We want a sense of growth in our lives. We want to see, if I look back to 10 years ago, I want to at least think, well, I'm doing better in some way, or I've grown as a human being in nice. some way. And nice. we also want a sense of autonomy. I, like, I want to be choosing my own choices. I want to do the things that I want to do instead of following somebody else. And so I think frustration, anticipation, boredom, contribute to that kind of broader conception of what the good life is in addition to happiness. So they might take, they might give us temporarily unhappiness, but we gain out of that um, experience of discontent. So, so it's almost like the no, no pain, no gain. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, I, yeah, I would say <laughs> yes. Right. Um, it, it's, we, 
we have to work for our lives. Um, we have to work to make them meaningful and have a sense of direction and this sense of growth and all that. And it comes with a price. Yeah. So I, I think you do, in the beginning of the book, make a good case where I was thinking to myself, yeah, you know, struggle and strife and difficult things do do come with the territory of trying to live fully and mm-hmm. not, right, I'm just going to coast through mm-hmm. life, right? I'm just going to just going to have a downhill coast and have no, no, no um, speed bumps in the road, right? Even though we think that's what we want, we know that that isn't what helps us grow and, and, and learn as human beings. That, that seems to be what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. And I, again, I don't want to say that this is the outlook that all of us have, but I think a large variety of us tend to think that, you know, we want happiness. Yes. We want health, but we want other things to have a complete life. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, some days we want more than others, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, according to your website, you started teaching a class on the good life. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And do you get students who are, who are very interested in that? I, I think so. So I want to believe that I do. I mean, it, it is. So I, I can say a little bit about the class. I am so happy that I get to teach the class. So I had the idea a few years ago to to start a class on the good life. And I teach it once a year and it's pretty much full. It's a small, smaller class, 40 students. And it is meant to be um, an intro to philosophy, but it's not a typical intro to philosophy uh, because the topic of good life is very interdisciplinary. Um, everybody has thought and talked about what life should be or what it is like or what I want out of life. So we do a little bit of philosophy, but we do a lot of other things. So there is um, a bunch of things, a bunch of uh, readings in psychology. Um, we do some literature. Um, we do some poetry. We talk about Bojack Horseman. Um, if they've seen the show. Um, so there's a lot of things to, it just seems like, you know, people talk you know, anything, the popular culture, I think is saturated with either explicit or implicit discussions of what we want out of life. And yeah. we can talk about it and criticize it or accept it. Yeah, I bet it's the discussions are fascinating. Yeah, I mean, they can be, you know, I, I, I we try and there's certain, not everything is light. Um, certain readings are heavier than others, and so. Um, uh, but it is. It is. I'm. I'm very lucky to be able to just have those conversations, and I think. I think what students get out of the class, and I hope this is a good thing, is an understanding of the complexity of the very question. Um, I think when people come into the class, they think they know what the good life is. And by the end of the class, they're like, hmm, it's a little bit trickier than I thought to define this concept. It's complicated, right? Because conversations about what is a good life or what does it mean to to, to live a good life for thousands of years of, yeah. of conversation, right, from philosophy and, like you said, all different disciplines. So it's not an easy answer. And ultimately... I would say that it's up for each of us individually to decide that and to work to strive for that. Um, 
So interesting. Um, all right, well, let me have another question from Brian here. Okay, this is gonna be another philosophy question. So, um, so here's what he says. You get pretty nerdy about Heidegger and the existentialists. And Brian also values these thinkers a great deal. Could you comment on the role of, and I'm, I'm gonna see if I'm saying this right, Husserl's, Husserl's? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I know that's a philosopher. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing H-U-S-S-E-R-L or other phenomenologists in their thinking about the ideas that you borrow from the continental tradition and philosophy for this book. Wow. I hope you understand that question. That's, that's a little bit, that's a little, talk about nerdy. That's too nerdy. Yeah, I mean, that. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that I do understand the question. So I think people will decide. Um, I, so Brian is right. So I find a lot of um, inspiration in existentialist thinking. And, and existentialism or existentialist thinking is a school of thought that arose in the, well, I think we kind of the consensus is that it's a 20th century movement, primarily in Europe and France. Uh, but also it's spread to other areas in the world, including Northern Africa, um, um, that is based on the assumption that who we are as human beings cannot be determined in advance. We don't have a fixed essence. So it's not that we're animals. It's not that we're souls. It's not that we're good people. It's not that we're bad people. Who we are is what we do. And we make up ourselves as we go along one action at a time. And, and what's fascinating to me about existentialism is they see life as an ongoing project. And the what we do, um, this works kind of, the, the metaphor is beautiful. They think that we kind of project ourselves into the future. So I have a role right now, which is, you know, I work for a higher ed institution. I teach, I write, I read things. That's my role, one of the roles that I have in my life. But that kind of role defines who, my, who, who, who I am. But in order for it to define who I am, I have to invest myself into that role. And I have to show up for classes, I have to prepare, I have to write, I have to meet with students. If I were not to do all those things, I cannot claim that I am a teacher. And so who we are is this ongoing process of making up ourselves all the time. And so we have to reaffirm our identities. For me, what this shows, and, and it just illuminated my way of thinking about anticipation, is that um, who we are right now, well, it's who we want to be. And we, we always anticipate in the future. We always figure out who, um, what goals we have in life. And that future that we have helps us determine um, our present, the actions that we're doing right now, and how to understand our past. Got it. Okay. So, so interesting. I have so many questions. So my first question is, some researchers have said that anticipation of a vacation is almost as good or better as the vacation itself. And I don't think I'm talking, I don't think I'm inaccurate here. I'm, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, uh -huh. but but um, there's lots of research that I'm familiar with where the anticipation of something is, there's a pleasure or, or to that experience. 
how does that research or that concept fit into your understanding of anticipation? Good, that's a great question. And so you're right, there's a lot of work that shows that anticipation can be a great source of pleasure. Um, it can also be a great source of pain, right? If you anticipate that you're gonna get hurt or you're gonna be ill. Um, uh, so what I do in the book, I, f I talk about different kinds of anticipation because I think anticipation is a huge part in our lives. Um, but unfortunately or fortunately, there are, various there are many varieties of anticipation. Um, I'm particularly interested in the kind of what I might call kind of the existential anticipation is I'm really anticipating a way of life or who I want to be. Um, and so th what I've learned from the existentialist readings, they weren't that interested in pleasure, actually. They, they thought life, you know, in, life has to be something else and not necessarily pleasurable. It has to be meaningful. It has to be your own life. Um, you have to have control over your life and give it an identity. Um, so that's the sense of anticipation that I'm mostly interested in. Um, I, I hope that's it's kind of anticipating who I want to be. And because I have that goal in mind, um, I have to readjust what I'm doing right now. Um, yes. um, however, what you said, and, and I do talk a little bit about the, in the book about this, um, it's a great source of happiness that we should not discount. Um, and it, it, often we talk or scientists talk about uh, this ability to savor experiences. And we can savor the experience while we're having the experience. Right? You're really enjoying your coffee, for instance. You just love it. And it gives you a great sense of right. joy and, and happiness. Uh, but you can also anticipate in a very positive way things to come. And you reap the benefits of that experience before it even occurs. Now, you know, it might be the case that when the actual experience comes, we're going to judge it using the standards of our anticipation. And we might say, well, it wasn't as good as I thought. <laughs> yeah. And there might be a, pay, a price to pay there. But I think um, I think anticipation, the variety that you're describing has a lot to offer to us. Uh, okay. And we shouldn't discount it. I'm just, I, I love that you said that and that you mentioned a cup of coffee because this is just going to sound, maybe sound a little funny, but sometimes I'll go to bed at night and I'll be already excited about that first cup of coffee. In the morning, I get to wake up and have a really good cup of coffee and, mm -hmm. I'll, and I'll be anticipating that and excited about going to bed because that's right around the corner. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it might sound like a little thing. Um, but I think it's a way that we operate and we program ourselves to keep on moving and motivated. We set our little goals and pleasures that we want to um, have and those structure our lives in, in meaningful ways because a cup of coffee signifies the beginning of your day. It allows you to you know, do your things that you want to do and all that. And so um, having that is important, um, I think. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Andres. <laughs> You know, I love your description of existentialism because I've never heard it described that way and and how I've always had an operating understanding. I'm not a philosopher, right? So I've always had this sort of operating concept of existentialism or you hear people in pop culture, oh, I'm having an existential crisis. Yeah. And so how I now 
understand that a little more deeply, if I may, and, and you tell me what you think about this, is that when when you say, oh, I'm having an existential crisis, you know, oh, I, I, I was looking forward to that cup of coffee and I'm out of coffee and I, I'm going to start my day with an existential crisis, that, that what that means is that um, those moments where we have uh, an experience or a cognitive dissonance or something happens to us that has us step back and question either something about ourselves or something about what we assumed about our partner or something about that's what you mean by we're always becoming yeah exactly we're, we're always just making decisions and so when things pull us off track it could be even if we're just joking it could be on another level like wow i have to rethink who i am or or what's important to me because wow, I really surprised myself. I did something really different or, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand it perfectly. I think insofar as it makes, it captures what the existentialists were trying to describe. And there are two, you, it's, it, it's a two-faced coin. So one way of understanding existentialism is to emphasize freedom. And for them, it's a philosophy of freedom. Human beings are free free to do what they want to become who they want. But at the same time, and, and this goes with kind of the notion of existential crisis that you were describing and we often talk about, they said that this kind of freedom carries or brings about anguish. And it's this realize if you're free, it's great sometimes, but also might be painful some other times, right? You're free, it means, well, you've chose this. You bear the responsibility for your career choice, for instance. If it doesn't go well, it's your fault in some way. So there is this uh, freedom comes with responsibility for that. And the moments where you were describing are moments of realizing that like, well, I could have done something else or I could have chosen something else or do I want to do this? We just realize that we live in this world and we're, you know, the roles that we take up are just roles. That doesn't mean that they're not meaningful and that they're not ours, but if we still, we build our choices um, to support those roles. So, so, okay, that's, that's really helpful. So like when we think of like a midlife crisis, then the existentialist would say, right, that's a moment where I've gotten to a part of my life where I've made all these choices and now other choices are cut off from me, yes. right? Because I'm, I'm 50 or whatever and I'm not going to be a, par you know, a parachutist in the army mm -hmm. or I'm never going to write that novel or I'm never going to be an Olympic swimmer or, or I'm never going to have, you know, eight, five kids that I thought I was going to, or whatever, um, that, um, that those, those are the moments where, again, our choices confront us. And we have to make meaning of them in some way. Yeah, and take responsibility, right? I mean, the way that you put it, it, it is, is a perfect way of capturing the anguish that comes along with freedom. Because as you described, as you said, making one choice, you know, um, it's going to have a consequence. And often the consequence of making one choice is that you cannot make another choice. Um, you've ruled out certain possibilities. So when you reach your 50s or whatever you want to call the point at which one considers having a midlife crisis, it can be like much earlier or much later. It is a moment. A lot of things can be going on. Well, you know, it's hard to pinpoint what a midlife crisis is exactly. 
But one of them is this realization that certain things are more difficult now, perhaps even off limits, because I've built my life in a specific way. I've made my choices and those carry consequences. Um, there's a type of inertia or energy that is hard to um, undo. Right. So like when I gave the example of being 25 and saying, oh, I can just give up this career and go back to school, right? I can easily do that. Well, you know, that's a choice I can make, but at 55, right, if I wanted to do that, that would have a whole other layers of implications for me. And um, I think of a writer once described different phases in life and he said, you know, when you get to like your, I think he said it was around like your 40s or 50s and a lot of times what you're doing is you're doubling down. like you've made a choice in your 20s and 30s to mm -hmm. study this or be a scholar or not be a scholar mm -hmm. right or something and or have kids and that there's that phase where you're doubling down like oh okay i'm not doing these 50 things mm -hmm. I'm doing these five things and that's your focus and so he talked to when he said that i thought wow that's a really interesting way to think about life patterns yeah, I mean, an existentialist won't say, you know, it's it's a difficult philosophy because they don't say what you should do. Um, it doesn't have that, it doesn't prescribe uh, courses of action. They just want you to realize that, well, you're doing it on your own. Just make sure you find something that gives you what you're looking for. Um, so if, you know, being a parent is, you know, you've made the choice again, I mean, parent is a great example because it is a role that we take, um, and we're pretty much stuck. Well, most of us are stuck with it, uh, but there, you can be a bad or a good parent, better or worse parent. So even in that role, that it's a long-standing role, um, we can choose how to behave and how to invest ourselves, um, our time and efforts in identifying with that role. That's really interesting. So when somebody says, well, existentialism, is that about like, why do we exist? Then would the existentialist say, then that's, that question is what you answer in your everyday life. Yeah. That's for you to live an answer to. Is that mm -hmm. fair? Yeah. And, and they're going to, the other thing that I want to add is that this is a bit more contentious, I think, with the existentialist. Um, I think one good one happy refinement of existentialism that arose after kind of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir were presenting existentialism um, came out with some people like Franz Fanon that were considering existentialism from a perspective of the oppressed or the racial minority. So it's one, and it's, de Beauvoir realized this. So when Sartre was writing, he was all about freedom and absolute freedom. But you can see that from the perspective of someone like Sartre, um, an affluent, successful white male in France, he had a lot of choices. Um, Simone de Beauvoir realized, well, actually, what Sartre is describing as this absolute freedom isn't quite right if you're a woman in the 40s. Um, and so the happy kind of the two good consequences out of existentialism, I think, or refinement is that is, one is the realization that every choice is restricted in some way, given our past and our role in society. Right. Yeah, we might want to do a lot of things, but we can't do all the things necessarily, or it's going to be much harder for certain people to exercise their freedom in some specific way than other people. Um, and the other um, idea that came out of this discussion of existentialism is that people really accuse, and I think rightly so, accuse Sard of 
making existentialism as an individualist movement. It's all about me or you as individuals. And what he realized later on, and other, people's, other people really helped him by criticizing him, is that perhaps this has to be a communal project. Um, in order for me to be able to exercise my individual freedom, maybe society as such should have certain freedoms first, and then those freedoms will allow us to um, engage in whatever projects we want. Interesting. Interesting. There's so much there. There's a lot there. And it sounds endlessly fascinating. Um, I know we're, we're just about out of time. Um, I just find your book so interesting and so many aha moments um, and so many reassuring, like reassuring, like, okay, that's okay. Life, my life should have these things. My life this is part of the good life. And, and I felt very reassured reading your book. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. Are you, are you uh, working on what's your next um, research project? Um, I'm thinking about it. Um, it's been, I'm kind of in the more of a researching or thinking process right now. So I did, I don't know if this is going to, if I'm going to go through with this. So um, I had a, originally the idea was to write a book on boredom, the whole book. And then when I started writing Propelled, I realized actually I, I'm more interested in exploring different ideas and putting them all together. Um, so there is the possibility of trying to write something just on boredom. Um, but the other project that I'm thinking about, and but it's going to take a long time, I think, to come to fruition. I'm interested in the, na in the nature of killjoy and what it means for people to be killjoys. And whether that has any positive aspects or not. So that will be the next project. Oh, fascinating. That sounds fun. I can just see this, the cover, Killjoy, now. Um, so, um, Andreas, um, let's let people know your, the, um, if they want to go to your website to learn more about your work, can you tell us where the, your URL is? Sure. It's my last name, and because of that, I'll have to spell it out. Uh, it's E-L-P-I. D-O-R-O-U dot net. Okay. Um, and I will put that on our, on our. Thank you. Yeah. Elpadura.net. And his book is Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life. It's from Oxford University Press, available at a bookseller near you. And um, Andreas, um, we're, I'm just so tickled that we could bring you back again. And thank you so much for this really fascinating book and so much for your time today. It was so great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Have a great 2022. You too. Thank you. For listening today and if you love the show and we hope you did you should stay tuned for more wonderful local programming here on forward radio and if you want to learn more about the programs that we offer look at our broadcast schedule access our archives and listen to some of our shows in podcast form learn how to donate and learn how to reach out and contact us you can do all of this at our website forwardradio.org. Remember, Forward Radio is radio for the people, by the people. We are a volunteer-led 
programmed station and uh, we get by and do our work with support from folks like you. We hope that as we move into 2022, you will enjoy all of our local programming as well as the national programs that we offer through our national affiliate Pacifica and give us feedback. Maybe you have an idea for a show. We'd love to get you on our airwaves. There's lots of ways that you can get involved and support Forward Radio through your time, your talent, your treasure, and continue to be a listener and a fan of Critical Thinking for Everyone, as well as so many of the great programs on Forward Radio. So stay tuned throughout 2022 and uh, listen and enjoy and get involved in whatever way that works for you. Forward Radio is social justice radio, grassroots community radio, and we're so proud to have you as a listener and would love to count you as a supporter. Thank you and happy 2022. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this great interview. And you can support Andreas's work by picking up his book, Propelled. But you can also support University of Louisville Philosophy uh, with your time, talent, or treasure. You can reach out to them. Uh, you can also support Patty's work through the Delphi Center and the U of L. Um, Extram Library. There's so many educational support organizations that are part of that. Um, that if you wanted to support something like University of Louisville, I mean, for that matter, University of Louisville generally is a terrific organization, and we appreciate all their support to help get this work done here at Forward Radio. Forward Radio still needs 20 bucks a day to broadcast out of the Hayburn building everybody keeps talking about in downtown Louisville. It's a super cool community project. We would love for you to get involved. But we'd also love to you, for you to go to forwardradio.org, click that donate button, and help us support the operation of this station. As Patty said, happy 2022, and just remember, critical thinking is for everyone, even you.